0: Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast.
1: As usual, we'll start with meditation. just gives us all a chance to come together as a group, but it gives us a chance to collect questions. So for people who have questions, this is the time to post them in the chat. And we'll collect them and then we'll answer them later in the session. But for now we have 15 minutes to post your questions and and do a little group meditation. You can do walking or sitting,
0: just silent meditation. Okay, thank you. That's our meditation
1: portion of this session. So now we should all be focused and alert, ready to engage mindfully. Uh, Hopefully in the future our, our sessions will be a little more stable right now we're doing uh, we're we're broadcasting remotely so the broadcast is coming from California and i'm broadcasting my voice to California but eventually we should have a local setup so we'll be a little less reliant on all the technology we're uh, setting up a new meditation center this year so we'll also have a dedicated meditation center to talk about Barring any crazy unforeseen unforeseen circumstances in the meantime we have Chris and Jim here to help out,
0: so we're ready now to ask uh,
1: to answer questions. If you have questions, you can still continue to post them, but we'll take the ones that have been asked, and I'll
2: start to answer them now. Today hey, we do have a few questions. Sometimes I get surprised, and my mind gets excited a lot, and this comes into meditation. I cannot observe this. I can observe this state, but why am I not able to contain the excitement at that very moment?
1: Because it's not under your control. So this is one of the three aspects of reality that. You come to see through the practice of mindfulness. This is called vipassana. Vipassana means seeing clearly. That's so what comes as a result of mindfulness. So it's surprising to us. Surprising that uh, that we're not able to control our surprise. That we're not able to control things like surprise. We expect that, especially through meditation, which is a direct intervention on a mental level that we should be able to control the mind, but that's not what mindfulness is about. It shows you that the process of experience isn't quite what we think it is. And the the difference between what it is and what we think it is is significant in in that it relates to our expectations, uh, our perspective, and, and how we approach life. So we normally approach life as situations to be controlled, fixed, uh, maintained. And so we get stressed and frustrated when, surprisingly, they don't listen to us. They aren't amenable to our control. Mindfulness helps you to see that uh, reality isn't ours to command. It, more, I guess more, more precisely, it, it helps us uh, have have or, or be free from uh, un unreasonable expectations so when you ask the question of why am I not able to do x, the sign that you you your expectation is out of line with reality. Uh, mindfulness helps you understand and Come in tune with the actual nature of our interaction with experience. Where it's not that we are helpless; it's that um, reality is more of an ongoing process, a dialogue between us and our experience, as opposed to being a, a master-slave relationship. Where, if, if anything, it's the other way around, where we are the slave, and we are we are controlled by our experience but we don't have the control that we think we do and so it's not exactly theoretical it's just what I would point out to you is that the fact that you're confused frustrated sometimes but um, surprised at the very least that surprised that you're surprised surprised that you can't stop yourself from getting excited and uh, confused is a sign that you are learning about the dissonance between your expectations and reality because it's not really a question of why is it the case it's a question that it is the case it is the case that you expect things to be a certain way under your control and in this instance and they aren't and so that's what that's what the experience of mindfulness should be like should be an adjusting of those expectations helping you to Become more in tune and more in, in in sync with reality the way things actually do work, so you're you're less stressed and and upset when things don't go your way because you start to understand how things go and how things can go, and you have a better attitude and a better approach towards reality that's less expectant and less unreasonable and less out of tune. Where things happen a certain way, and you get frustrated. Why did they happen that way? Uh, the, the, the The question, "Why do things happen, happen a certain way?" is not really important. What's more in question is what more important is uh, how do you how do you feel when how do you react? How does it hit you when they do change in that way? Because they they did they changed in in a certain way and. Well, mostly we just get frustrated or upset or sad. And that sadness and upset, that stress and suffering is a sign that we're out of sync. That's all. Mindfulness just helps you be more in tune with reality and and less judgmental and upset when things change. So I don't really... uh, The the answer to your question isn't really what's important. What's important is to see that I... it's uh, there's a dissonance between what you expect things to be like and what they're actually like and so as you're mindful you'll start to say hmm yeah well that's that's the way things are i can see i'm not able to contain my excitement and excitement is out of my control Uh, you you get a better relationship to your own mind where you stop trying to control it and be in charge and force it to be a certain way which really just always ends up in frustration stress and disappointment when you you know, it's, it's just not the nature of the mind. And so it's not, uh, I don't have advice or, or solution for it, which is often what people are looking for. They're looking for me to tell them how they can control their mind when it just seems so out of control. You know, that's not what this is about. It's not about giving you a way to control. It's about adjusting your perspective so you no longer need control. You're no longer surprised or upset
0: when, Things are out of your control.
2: How do I increase a sense of urgency? I'm depressed, lonely, in a rut, but I just don't feel the fear, the terror, that once had brought me into Buddhism. How to stop this torpor, this nihilistic apathy?
1: Well, again, it's the same sort of thing as the last question. Again, you don't need to stop it; you just need to be mindful of it. So, don't look at that as the answer or the the the. It's not the tree you should be barking up. You should be um, mindful of the torpor and the nihilistic apathy and depressed, lonely. Those are just feelings, and you'll feel a lot better if you're mindful towards them. You don't have to get rid of them. That's not your job. Your, your change in perspective, your, the, your um, objective observation of them will cause them to disappear because they rely on a dissonance. Again, this dissonance between the way things are and the way you expect them to be. You want to be around people, for example, or you want to have friends, and, and that's not the way reality is. Maybe you have no friends. Maybe you're alone all the time and so, and so on. Maybe you don't get what you want, and so you're depressed. and It's just a dissonance between reality and your expectations. you be more mindful. You'll, you'll, your mind will be like, yes, this is the way things are. Why would I get upset about that? That, be, that? that wouldn't hurt reality or change reality. That would just make me upset. It's like when someone dies, it's not really useful to feel all sad and upset. You can't say that there's any benefit to it it's it's a reaction and it's it's understandable and it's very hard very uh, rare for someone to not be upset when a loved one dies of course but um there's there, there's no good to it it's not going to bring the person back as the buddha said like um well the english expression that that's also in the pali is there's no use crying over spilt milk
0: that's not going to bring the milk back So, your depression and loneliness and so on don't help. And that's what you'll start to see. When a song
2: repeats on loop in our head, should we note singing or listening? Because it seems to be both.
1: Neither one is quite precise. The actual experience is hearing. That's what's happening. If you ask yourself what's happening, there's not really singing. Singing would be more useful for the physical. movement of the vocal cords, because it's a description of that sequence of physical sensations, singing. But um, the actual experience of the sound is hearing. Even if it's in your mind, you'd say hearing. Listening is also not quite what is happening. I mean, it's not a description of the actual experience. It's a description of what the mind is doing. So it's not wrong. It's just a little more useful to say hearing because that's the actual experience.
2: How do sankaras of past life manifest in the present life? How does the practice help in getting rid of Sankaras of past life?
1: But there's another meditation tradition that uses this word sankara in this way, and I'm not a fan. Um, I I don't think it's a proper buzzword. It just it's become a real buzzword where they use this uh, this word like like you're using it, and it kind of. Not exactly. Well, I, I'm not a fan because sankara is everything. Sankaras don't, from the past, don't manifest in the present. Sankaras are anything that arises is a sankara. Uh, or sankaras refer to the fourth aggregate. There's two meanings. There's many meanings, but let's say these two meanings. One, every arisen phenomenon is a sankara. That's what the word is used to designate. Anything. Sabe sankara anicca all sankharas are impermanent and what that means is everything that arises ceases it means every arisen thing Sankara is a formed thing something that is formed because all experiences are formed anything that arises is formed it means it has causes and conditions so that's why it's called a sankara. it's also conditioning in that it, it, it acts as a cause for other things quite often um, and but the other way that perhaps this tradition is more not our tradition but this other tradition is is more thinking is um the fourth aggregate which is an important one the fourth aggregate is also called sankharas but here it's mental formations what it means specifically is um constructed responses to experiences so liking and disliking but again that has nothing to do with past lives uh, this this usage that you're asking in your question is not accurate your your question is uh, imprecise something from the past will never manifest in the present but but you're you're using this word to describe perhaps the the nature of karma which is not really that mysterious it's just um basically the way we understand cause and effect in a physical sense also um takes place in a mental sense meaning if um if water um if if the waves wash against rocks long enough they'll slowly erode it that's a process you can you can see the effects of over time um so meaning the physical effect the physical um physical phenomena have a visible result right cause and effect why is this rock eroded it's because the the waves kept hitting it or the water kept hitting it um the same is visible in the mind why is the mind stressed and suffering because the mind gave rise to or cultivated addiction and attachment Uh, so you're sort of i think getting at this idea but um how how does this happen? I mean, it, it's still not a quick case of things manifesting. It's a case of habits forming and there being results and consequences. Um, so I wouldn't phrase it as we practice to get rid of anything, especially anything from the past. You don't get rid of things from the past. That would be kind of silly, right? Because past is past. What would it mean to get rid of something that's already happened? It's already gotten rid of. It's already rid itself by disappearing. As everything does, sabhi saṅkāra anitya, all saṅkāra's arise and cease, they're impermanent. So what we practice to do is to change our perspective so that we don't give rise to further um, saṅkāra's in the sense of the fourth aggregate, meaning meaning, uh, constructed reactions. We break apart our habits, we wean ourselves off our habits of addiction, attachment. So I wouldn't use the word that word the way you're using it, but um, that's how I understand our practice: it's changing our perspective, not trying to get rid of anything. Though, though, obviously the change of perspective will will get rid of a lot of bad things. It just that getting rid of is not something we do. What we do is change our perspective. The getting rid happens by itself. I mean, it's not ridding ourselves of some of a possession. It's about preventing or or You know, changing. It's like if you come to an intersection and you turn left, well, you'll never turn right. You'll never have the experiences of whatever it is to the right because you turned left. That's all. Because we're mindful, we will never have the experiences that would be a result of being unmindful. And that's that's what it means. That's how, to that extent, you could say getting rid of, but you wouldn't really say that. Just like you wouldn't say, "I turned left, then I got rid of all the experiences of turning right." When you're mindful, you get you don't get rid of the experiences of being unmindful. You just prevent them by the very nature of not giving rise to the cause, which is unmindfulness.
2: I do the risings and fallings. I also do the body scan. Were they both taught by the Buddha? I would say
1: rising and falling is is more close. Uh, I mean, I I, I don't think we really know exactly um how the buddha well my guess my feeling i think probably a safe interpretation is that the buddha didn't give very specific um, practice most of the time because it wasn't that required i mean there was a lot of um potential among the people he was surrounded with and so often he didn't have to give very specific instruction at all so i would say to, to be fair most meditation techniques that we have today and probably what were around even in the time of the buddha were um were the uh, const- were constructed by followers, by individuals trying to implement the Buddhist teaching on a practical level. And that's what we have certainly today. Whatever the case may have been 2,500 years ago, how much that would have been necessary. It certainly is helpful, uh, and most often I would say absolutely necessary, to have this um, specificity of technique where we don't say, Oh, go and watch your breath. We we give you a lot more instruction than that, and so body scanning is one um, technique that they've come up with, and watching the stomach rising and falling is another. Now, why I say rising is falling is probably closer is because we actually do have a, a an ex, um, explicit mention of watching the the tension in the stomach. It's called the um. The winds in the stomach the I can't remember the pali for some reason, but anyway the, there's there's an actual phrase that is the air what is the theda the the air element one of them is the winds in the stomach. the Buddha mentions it now he doesn't single it out, but given the connection to anapanasati, it seems quite reasonable to to practice in this way because you're applying anapanasati as a means to uh, experience vayodhatu, which is actually distinct. Anapanasati means mindfulness of breathing. Vayodhatu is not exactly the air element, though that's what it literally translates as. It's the pressure, the actual physical manifestation of, of the breath. So it's not the breath exactly. It's the actual reality behind what we call breath, because breath is not actually reality. It's not the actual experience. You don't experience the breath. You experience the sensations. And so the tension is a sensation in the body, and watching that is is an actual experience that you can observe the beginning and the middle and the end of, which is you know, watching the beginning, middle, and end of experiences is very, very much the core of the Buddha's teaching on mindfulness and vipassanā. Body scanning, I don't think is. I mean, I'm not of the opinion that it's wrong, but it's not exactly. I and mean, I, I wouldn't. I don't. I don't teach it to people, but um, I mean, I know the people who practice it apparently have quite good results. Uh, it's not really what I. Well, it's not what I teach. Let's put it that way. And I don't. I don't think you could find any explicit mention of it, though. I don't see how it is directly it could be it isn't directly contrary to the buddhist teaching or in in conflict with the buddhist teaching so i leave it up to the individual to see how uh, how in line it is with the actual buddhist teaching
2: there is a carpet in the middle of my path when doing walking meditation how should i notice when stepping in the small bump where the carpet begins I'm walking
1: you. There's some leeway to not note everything. It's just too hard because there's too much going on. And and in general, you shouldn't be concerned with noting everything. The fact that you're aware of that, and and perhaps also aware, likely also also aware of the fact that you can't stop yourself from being aware of that. It's like, why can't I just ignore it, right? But the mind won't let you. The mind won't ignore it. And the fact that you can see that is important. So there's a lot of things you'll see and experience that you won't note and don't need to note, just as long as you're noting. So in walking, that means noting the movements of the foot, stepping right, stepping left, and so on. You don't have to note everything else. And there's, there's no, it's not how should I notice. You do notice, but you don't note it. You just note the movements of the foot as instructed by the exercise. Now, if something is distracting you, you can stop and switch to note that instead. But that this isn't that sort of thing. If you're frustrated about it or, di- or disturbed by it or something, then you would stop and note that instead. Disturbed or frustrated or worried
0: or so on.
2: I've been meditating for a year, but I can't meditate for more than 15 to 20 minutes maximum. How do I increase the duration of my sessions?
1: Well, the best way is to have a teacher and to undergo intensive or at least direct practice with a teacher. So you can find links on our website to an at-home course, which might be of interest to you. If you go to the site at the bottom, there's links that should lead you to our courses page, and you can find out about that. We also fairly soon will have uh, rooms for meditators to come and uh, practice at our center so you could come and do an intensive course and you'll you'll see it's really night and day once you have that framework it's much easier to i mean it's not it's not going to solve your problem but it will certainly make it easier to make the commitment
0: and it's quite valuable
2: how important is it to keep the precepts and how would the practice of someone who keeps the precepts differ from someone who practices without keeping the precepts?
1: Well, it's not exactly, it's not actually, keeping the precepts as a thing is not of any consequence whatsoever. It's, it should be phrased differently. How, how, how impactful is it to perform the actions that constitute breaking the five precepts? If you phrase it that way, it makes a lot more sense. It's much easier to understand. Killing is a disruption to your practice. Stealing is an interruption to your practice. It's not a magic thing where, oh, look at what magically happens when I keep the five precepts. We're all keeping the five precepts right now. Nothing magic is happening. But when the opportunity comes to break them and you break them, that has an impact on your practice. Killing will definitely pollute your mind. Stealing Cheating, lying, drugs, and alcohol i mean it's it's quite blatantly obvious how impactful these acts are. I mean, not so obvious if you haven't done mindfulness, I suppose, but as you practise mindfulness it's it becomes quite blatantly obvious, horrifically so often, how a lot of our actions have polluted our mind and how blind we were to to the detriment they had on our general psyche, not just um meditation. Someone who doesn't keep the precepts can't really... I mean, by breaking those very, very uh, basic rules of human conduct, uh, it's, it's not, not likely that they're going to be very mindful at all.
2: Now that I meditate, I see that I am this consciousness. Am I this consciousness if there is no self? You don't
1: see that you are this consciousness, that's your interpretation. Um, It's just a thought that arises, so you should just note that. What you're seeing is your views and your your perspectives. So those are just um, interpretations. What's actually happening is there's experiences, and you're interpreting that in a certain way. You should rather interpret it as consciousness arises, experience arises and ceases. That's the most honest you can be for you, with yourself, rather than talking about me and mine, which are just not actually reality. They're just interpretations. Focus on experience arises and experience ceases. It's hard. It's a very subtle shift, but um, it's an important, it's a necessary one. And it's one that you're going to eventually come to if you practice intensively enough, this realize how deeply entrenched this perspective or this perception of self is, this interpretation, really. So it's it's so deep that it just seems obvious and a part of the experience when it's actually not. Reality is not I am consciousness. Reality is experience arises and ceases. That's hard to see, though. That shouldn't be um, obvious to someone who hasn't practiced mindfulness. That should sound confusing and unintuitive. It's unintuitive because we're we're our whole perspective is wrong. It's like Mahasi Sayadaw talks about um, if if a horse is wearing green tinted glasses, they're gonna see all the dry grass as as fresh grass because it's green, and you can't convince them that it's not green because that's how they see it. But they're just using glasses. They're just their perspective is wrong. So it's maybe that's maybe. Um, uh, the same as we say in English, uh, rose-colored glasses. When you look at the world through rose-colored glasses, it's a way, it, it's an expression that means when you see everything shaded by your positivity, for, for example, like everything's going to be all right, and then you're shocked when it's not, and disturbed and upset when it's not.
0: You're not flexible. This is,
1: so this is kind of like that. This is just a perspective. Try and be mindful, and you'll you'll see that actually at the base of it, it's not about I being anything. It's just about experiences arising
0: and ceasing.
2: In what proportion should time be invested in the practice and study of Buddhism?
1: I don't have a proportion. Um, I mean, I, my, I, right away I want to say two to one, but that's just, I, I don't really know. I don't know that it's a matter of time, I would say. Your focus should be on practice and let that dictate how much study you do I, I think some people do get a little bit carried away with that and become ignorant meditators where they don't they refuse to do any study because they hear that it, it's inferior to practice it is inferior but 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 uh, ignorant practice is is actually can be quite dangerous so don't be an ignorant practitioner um, study a little bit study some but you'll you'll your your mindfulness should dictate the proportion i would say I mean, my guess is two to one it's probably the best some people would probably say one to one of course it's never going to be more than one to one i mean more study than practice but i would say two to one is probably a good
0: ratio Somewhere between one to one and two to one. I'm leaning towards two to one
2: When one gets angry at that instant, I don't want to be mindful. How does one change this attitude?
1: again, you don't change it, so this is this constant constant question that we get that we get on these sessions right and it's not to reprimand you it's It's to um point out how um how pernicious this uh, approach to reality is, where we're trying to change things. So, you come and ask me, How do I change things? And you're not listening. I'm not telling you. I'm telling you to stop trying to change things. Right? It's, it's everyone that asks this question because this is where our heads are. How do I change? How do I change? Don't stop trying to change. Focus on seeing clearly. So, in this case, you don't want to be mindful. That's the reality it doesn't mean what your mind is telling you it means that you shouldn't meditate it just means that you have that that aversion it's a disliking mind state it's an aversive mind state so you're just not disliking or averse averse disliking is accurate even though it doesn't seem intuitive the actual reality is a disliking because there's an experience a thought you think of meditating and there's a Anger about that, a disliking of that thought. That's actually how what happens, so no, no disliking.
0: Don't try to change it, just try
1: and be more mindful of it.
2: Then you're already practicing. When we leave the primary object to note a distraction, do we finish noting the last rising or falling before the distraction?
1: Uh, do you, well Okay, I'm not quite sure what you mean. If when you leave, when you note a distraction, you don't, you don't first. I don't think this is what you're asking, but you wouldn't first note the rising and falling before noting the distraction. But if you mean after noting the distraction, whatever it was, the answer is after that you go back and note the rising again. Always start again with the rising. Note the distraction until it goes away and then wait for the next rising. I mean, there's no magic behind that. It's just a lot less busy in the mind if you try to continue with the process. Just start over with the rising. It wouldn't be evil or wrong if you were to note the falling instead, but it's good practice to start over with the rising. Don't worry about the stomach. Note whatever it was until it goes away and then go back. and.
0: Well, then start on the rising again, rising, falling.
2: Why do images from movies and online videos come back to my mind constantly? Does it happen to everyone? Is my mind very weak? A strong meditator doesn't have this problem, correct?
1: Well, well, sort of yes, but don't, but it's still kind of falling into this trap of thinking that if I were strong enough, I could somehow stop the images, and that's not how it works what happens so it's not a matter of being strong at all, it's a matter of um clearing the mind or cleansing the mind, purifying the mind, so as you're more and more mindful, uh, you purify your mind from. The reactions that tend to lead to such things being imprinted on the mind—the liking and the disliking and the emotions surrounding such things—there's there's usually strong emotions associated with movies, songs, you know, feelings of liking and passion. And songs we can be very passionate about, really uh, excited about them, uh, intoxicated by them, and so they have a strong imprint on our mind and. As that changes, well, the, the imprint is weaker and weaker and weaker, and, and they still keep coming back. But because we're not imprinting them on the mind again, they, they come back weaker and weaker until they just don't come at all. But it's 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 a good sign generally when that happens. It's a sign that you're you're there's a dissonance between that um reality and your new um, perspective. So as you start to be mindful, there's a dissonance between the old way where you, your mind is showing you what what the old way was like, where, hey, remember this? And then you'd be like, oh, yeah, let's go rewatch that movie again or listen to that song again. Now there's a dissonance. You're like, what? Why is this coming? And rather than saying, oh, good, it's the song's coming back, you're like, no, this is not where, where I'm focusing. And so it can be quite stressful in, in the beginning. Um, but eventually, you learn to to uh, learn to let go and just be mindful. Hearing, hearing. Yes, it will happen ad nauseum, and yes, it can be very frustrating in the beginning and distracting, certainly. But it's not a distraction. It's just another object of mindfulness, and you should treat it as such. Why it's happening? Well, there's your explanation. It's just imprints on the mind, but that's not even so important to to understand. It's just important that you note hearing, hearing. That's all or seeing-seeing, in this case.
2: Are dreams directly correlated with a busy mind?
1: Uh, I mean, there's a general correlation. A busy mind, it's not exactly a busy mind. It's a a mind that has um, bad habits, I would say, is usually the case. I mean, there are dreams that aren't bad habits, per se, but a lot of our dreaming is just caused by our bad habits the mind having bad having un unskillful or or um, let's say impure but impure in a very technical sense meaning th- habits that are caught up with um clinging
0: basically
2: Life is nothing more important or meaningful than risings and fallings. Is this correct?
1: That sounds pretty good. I don't how, I can't find fault with that statement. A very wise sort of
0: statement. Well done. I like it.
1: I mean, I'm, rising and falling is I wouldn't push that phraseology too much a little better would be arisings and ceasings though it perhaps doesn't sound quite so poetic so risings and fallings is okay but those are the words we use for the stomach we don't so much use those for the arisings and ceasings Um, but i understand that's what you're saying it's just let's not get mixed up and because sometimes meditators do get mixed up and they think when we say rising and falling we're talking about the arising and ceasing but arising and ceasing is something different. Rising and falling is just an English colloquialism. I mean, it's, the, it's the weird words we use to describe the inflation and the deflation of the stomach when it's not really rising, it's expanding and contracting or inflating and deflating. So in French, they say gonfler, uh which is inflating, deflating. And in Thai, they say the same thing, pong na, yup na, which means. Uh, well, basically, inflating and deflating. But in English, for some weird reason, we say rising and falling. Like like bread, actually. Bread rises and falls. Or, or uh, baked products, cakes, rise and fall.
2: Being mindful more and more lately, how do I keep up with daily life and planning? While also always being mindful in the moment. Well, it's a challenge.
1: Uh, you're often inclined to live a more simple life. I mean, one of the things you'll see is that, or, or one of the things that that will cause this sort of dissonance is the conflict between a mindful lifestyle and our lifestyle as as we find it. So you'll you'll this sort of question that you're asking. Is often a product of this this again dissonance between the old way and the new way. So you you think how can I keep up this lifestyle if I'm truly going to be mindful? And really the answer is you can't. You wouldn't. You would abandon that lifestyle. So a lot of our life, the way we live our lives, will be abandoned. There's really no avoiding it, because they were the simple answer. Simple reason is because a lot of our lifestyle the way we live our lives was dependent and and made sense only with craving and clinging and attachment right possess possession materialism uh, relationships i mean think of why we get married we don't get married because there's some um, impelling compelling reason there's not logical usually i mean some people do get married because it's logical i mean it's kind of logical if you're going to live in the world, having a spouse is it can be quite practical. But that's not why we do it, right? We we get married and have a spouse. I don't know. I don't know if it's even fair to say it is all that practical. But it can be, more, you know, it gives you a team and easier to make money and, and you know, live sometimes ever, both having a team where both partners can bring in money makes life sometimes easier. Uh, so there's that. But um, usually, that's not why we've gotten married, and so meditators often have a real conflict with their spouses because suddenly there's a dissonance. They want certain uh, realities, their expectations out of the out of the relationship are different from our from what we're able to give to the relationship because we can't give the same clinging clinginess, the same uh, passion an addiction to them as they give to us uh, it can be quite a challenge and and that's you know partners is the glaring one but there's so many other things in our lives our jobs often is like why am i doing this job again I, I, how do i do my job and still be mindful the answer is you don't probably you, many jobs are, are are it's hard to be mindful and eventually ultimately you have to find a better way to live your life uh, mindfully, I mean, it, it's it's kind of a balancing act. For most people, it's not that extreme. It's just a matter of acknowledging that there is a dissonance, there is a, a conflict, and you have to balance meditation and the unmindfulness of daily life. Because, I mean, if you're a Buddhist monk, what kind of planning do you need? I think I'll go on pindapata now. I'll, I'll go I'll go for for food now, for alms food now. And you, if I you know, if I get food, I'll eat.
0: If I don't get food, I won't eat. What do I have to plan for?
1: There is a story of two monks in the Visuddhimagga, and one of them uh, they, they 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 come together at the monastery. They they come together to a monastery, and uh, one of them picks up a walking staff and uh, a, a jar of oil. Uh, for his feet or for his head or whatever. The oil was a thing like like uh, lotion nowadays, but they had oil to oil their bald heads, so I guess it helps get sun sunburn and so on as well. Um, and so he, he collected a fan, and he said, two or three things. Like, he, they had nothing, and, and somehow at the monastery these were offered to him, and so he put them in his room. And then they went on alms round the next day, and on their way back from Monzurah, one the other monk said, "Hey, let's go to this other monastery. I heard there's a, a monk giving a teaching tonight on the Dhamma." And the the first monk said, the other monk says, "Okay, well, let me go back to my room and get uh, get my jar of oil and my fan or whatever it was." And the other monk says, "You've only been here a day and you've already collected possessions. What kind of a monk are you? You know, basically to that." Um, little you know minor minor extent you know the other monk was already was reprimanding about having just a jar of oil and a fan so yeah i don't know most monks would be able to manage like that but it is a good uh, ideal to try and uh, appreciate try and live up to i mean ultimately the best way to live is to not have any attachments not have any need for any kind of preparation or planning yeah. monks don't even uh, the, um, the the ideal practice for a monk and it's not required but it's a practice that some monks will undertake is to never accept an invitation to a meal because for the same reason if you, so two monks um, going, going on alms and then they come back and one says, "Let's go listen to this talk, And they said, "Oh no, but we already, we already, um, I already accept an invitation for lunch." And as a result, he couldn't go and and uh, he couldn't change his plans. So so even to that extent, monks don't make plans. Someone invites you for lunch. You, you say, "I'm sorry, I just take whatever food I get when I get it," because otherwise uh, you. Well, it's I mean, it's not unwholesome to do that. It's actually most monks would accept the invitation, but it can be quite a a powerful practice not to, because it keeps you from having any any expectations or any uh, attachment. I mean, it gives you the the power to be very present and mindful, not planning as you say about the future for that very reason, because. Planning does get and can get in the way of mindfulness very easily.
0: Okay.
1: Yeah, I have long answers today. Um, So if you didn't get to your question... Uh, and you think it was an important one for your med- meditation practice, then please come back and answer, ask it again, or you can sign up for an at-home course on our website and start practicing meditation, and we'll meet one-on-one, and you can ask me the questions directly. That's the best way. Uh, ask me them directly uh, in our interviews. Wish you all the best, everyone. Thank you for coming. Peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering to everyone. Sadhu. 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 Thank you, Chris and Jim, for your help.